to love him in return. The best way we can offer that up is to lay our lives down and allow him to have his way within us. And then our life becomes an offering and we become infused with the work of the Holy Spirit and the things that he wants to accomplish in our lives. But in order to create as much room for him as possible, sometimes we have to get other things out of the way. We're going to start talking next week as we move into putting on the clothing of Christ as it's talked about in Colossians 3. But before you can put it on, you've got to make room by taking other things off. The jacket on the right is a $9,000 Balenciaga uh, coat that they rolled out at a fashion show some time back. Critics said he was probably inspired by Joey Tribbiani on Friends when he was um, amassing a lot of outfits all at the same time. Although either could be found in the um, Door Student in January collection. <laughs> but it looks ridiculous if you want to put on something new that you wouldn't take something else off first. In fact, many scholars believe that the first century practice of early Christian baptism involved a changing of clothes as well as the immersion in water, that you would actually put on a new garment. And so as we enter into this passage, you've got to take off the old sinful nature if you want to die with Christ in order that you can make room to put on the new creation that you are in Christ. It's acknowledging the entering into his death so that we can also enter into and share in his resurrection. This might look cute on a baby all bundled up with seven layers, but if you were to go just right now and want to put on the new clothing of Christ in your life without shedding some of what's underneath, you're not going to be able to move around very well. You're going to be restricted in your movement. And there are too many Christians today who are restricted in their movements, even in the freedom of the Spirit, because we have not attended first to the things that God wants to get rid of. And so that's where Paul starts in this passage. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Let's talk about a good kind of killing. Pretty rare thing for a Christian to be able to do, but that's where Paul goes in this passage. Put to death. Rid yourselves. Get it gone. Right before this in Colossians 3.3, Paul says, you have died. You died. So now you've got to dress like that's already happened. I wore black all day today because I got ready to officiate a funeral. It is my hope and my prayer that there are some sins that are going to die in this place today in your life and in mine as we tend to the things that Christ wants to rid us of. 
And notice the balance here, too, in this language. It's kind of reflexive. If you studied linguistics and looked at other languages, you learned French growing up like I did, the whole category of like reflexive verbs, things that you do to yourself. There's always great debates in Christianity between, well, how much is what God is doing and how much is my own free will? So let's talk about sovereignty and free will. What am I responsible for and what is it that God actually does in that process? You'll notice there's a slight variation in all of Paul's language. The movements of God and what the Spirit creates, the fruit of the Spirit, putting on the clothing of Christ, the gifts of the Spirit, these are very clearly works of God gifted to his people. But when it comes to ridding ourselves, there's a little more of a reflexive sense within those verbs. There's a little more, um, it's, the onus is on us. And if you want to walk all the way from, away from God, there's enough free will in your life that you can do that. So the killing of the sins and putting them off in our own life is a little more on us. And as soon as we enter into that process, God is so eager to create the regenerative work of his spirit, the sanctification They're replacing it with something newer and much more beautiful. God gives us gifts, but we gotta take off the old self to make room for the new to come in. Put to death, therefore. You'll notice in this passage, he's really got two categories, right? He addresses first sexual sins, and then those in our actions of behavior and language towards one another. So let's look at those in those two categories for a few minutes here. And if you've been at Dort a while, you've probably heard me reference before that I don't think it's an accident that when sin enters into the picture in Genesis 3, the first part of our humanity that felt it, maybe the most vulnerable parts of who we are, are often related to our sexuality. And I would argue that's probably because it's the most, one of the most reverent and holy aspects of who we are. Humanity was given within it the potential to create something in our own image. There's perhaps nowhere else in our being where we are more God-like than within a sexuality that holds within it the potential to create life in our own image. Something that only God can do. See, that's to be revered, and maybe that's why it's also where we're the most vulnerable. Sin enters the picture, and they felt naked and ashamed, so they hid. And this probably is the place of hiding for so many of us in our lives that nobody else knows about. And in Christian circles especially, it's the hardest thing to come forward and ever talk about some sort of sexual sin in our life. But what I want you to hear inside this text is the invitation to engage these things because right now, the more our anxiety goes up in life, the more worried we are, the more we are dictated by fears around us, the more we close in on ourselves, the more we have to isolate, the more we have to quarantine. The greater the risk inside of us that we will lean more towards our temptations. And in moments of mental gymnastics and self-justification, we will permit ourselves to do things that we would not otherwise do. I was so blessed in our campus ministries meeting last week. We've been reaching out and talking to students going into isolation and quarantine. And one student in particular chose to see this as his opportunity to address a sin in his own life 
and said, I'm going into quarantine for 14 days. It's time to do battle with the sin of pornography and the addiction it is in my life, and I want it gone. So he, he decided through resurrection eyes to see a quarantine as an opportunity to come out the other side, like entering into and dying with Christ and rising, coming out the other side. What if every one of those moments was treated by us as an opportunity to enter into the death and share in the resurrection of Jesus in the same way that he went into a tomb and rose out the other side? What a beautiful vision to see even something difficult as opportunistic. How gloriously redemptive it is for God's people when even the worst things he can redeem and make new and make beautiful. So how do you do that? How do you kill, how do you put to death the parts of our sexuality that are haunting us, that are lingering, that are nipping at our heels, that are undermining our faith, that make us feel shame. Too often we want to band-aid the issues. We want to do one of two things. Either imagine that we're going to find some sort of magic off button for our sexuality and just turn it all the way off and believe that somehow that exists as if God didn't create that and say that it was very good. Or we go the other way and we just sort of dance around the edges and kind of just dabble at redemption. But the pool of grace was meant to be swam in the deep end of and not dabbled in. You need to go for the root. You need to go for the jugular. If you want to kill something, you have to cut off its lifelines. For so many of us today, that means re-evaluating the way that we use and access technology. If the national statistics are true, and I have no reason to believe that they aren't, that means that on any given week, staff, faculty, or student, even on a campus as Christian as Dort University, upwards of 70% of all males at least once a week will intentionally be seeking out pornography. And 30 plus percent of women. That doesn't even include what we also do within our imaginations or our objectification of other people. Now imagine if this was gone. Not your sexuality, but just the misplacement of its desires. See, he kind of runs through a little list here, sexual immorality. I'm not going to parse out all the Greek here, but basically this is what we're getting at. Sexual immorality is any form of intercourse outside of marriage. The word in the text is porneia, and we obviously get the word pornography from this. Impurity. Character that becomes contaminated by behavior. Impurity is when our, our character, which we want to believe is separated from our behavior, that if we just indulge in one little thing, it's not actually touching the core of who we are, but the reality is that that's just not true. Our behavior does affect our character, and our character, our behavior. And lust, Dan Allender calls desire gone mad. My favorite definition of lust is this. Lust is the drive within us that only ever asks what's in it for me. Whereas love is what always asks what's in it for them. If you're trying to parse out the difference in your own life, lust is by its very nature selfishly motivated. 
It's interested in what I want and what I can get from somebody else. It devalues the humanity of someone and the image bearing within them. Believing that if we take something for ourselves or become more preoccupied with our own gratification, that we would be happier. But the one who made us knows that our hearts weren't wired for that. That our truest joy comes when we lay down our life and seek the love of others rather than the gratification of our own desires. There's this line, evil desires, and we need to tend to those. And I think this is where we often get that, that kind of dual approach wrong, right? Where we sort of feel like there's this off switch. And um, Richard Foster and Gail Beebe in their book, Longing for God, talk about these desires. They say it like this. The Christian message is not the elimination of desire, but the transformation of desire. So your sexuality is not something that has an off switch or even should be attempted to be turned off. Righteousness isn't an elimination of your humanity. It's actually the accentuation of it. It's your humanity directed along the path of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't say, I have come that you would have a lesser life and that it would be more pale than the rest of the world who gets to indulge every desire that they have. Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. And in all reality, it's the thief who only comes to steal and kill and destroy. So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And the last ones he lists here, greed, unrestrained, selfish desire for material things. See, one of the most dangerous things about any form of sexual dysfunction or lust or greed is it looks at the things that are good in God's world and it reduces them to material. It's some commodification of an image bearer. We have to strip in our minds the humanity and the image bearing off of somebody in order to look at them in a lustful way. And by that, we're devaluing them and ourselves. And the reason why this is so important is not because we need to cultivate a deep sense of shame as Christians around sexuality, which has so often been the horrible message that has been sent. We read lines like this, and we read this as sort of a shaming thing. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But listen to what he says to describe this. You used to walk in these ways. The wrath of God is coming, not because God is so angry at his kids when they do these things. But God is so sad for his children because of where it is leading if you used to walk in these ways, you were walking, you're moving, you're in a direction, you're heading somewhere. You're heading further away from everything that God wanted you to be. All of his joys, all of his abundance, all of his fullness of everything that created life and love and sexuality to be. And his heart is broken for his kids in that and he, and, he, and he tries to woo us back, come back to me and come back to my ways. I wanted more than this for you. I wanted so much more than this for you. N.T. Wright says it like this in his commentary on this passage. He says, part of the horror of hell, it appears, is that those who consciously and continually choose sin instead of God become less and less human until all that ennobles them as creatures made in God's image has, by their own choice, been altogether obliterated beyond hope or pity. 
And those who choose to live without God will one day find that they have forfeited their likeness to Him. See, the evil one wants to tell us all the time that when we indulge in something that is self-destructive, that somehow it's separate from our Christian walk. And it's not hurting us as bad as it is. It's the lie already told in the Garden of Eden, and he's been refining that one ever since. Replaying it in its own unique form for you and for me in all of our unique temptations, limitations, anxieties, and insecurities. So we need to tend to those things. To see them as opportunistic and not because God is so angry at us, but because God's just telling us, I want you to move into the fullness of your humanity. I don't want you to cheat yourself from what I created you for. God is still good. And he's for his kids. And I just want all of us in, in times where we're kind of getting ramped up in terms of our own anxiety to make sure that we're not reaching for the wrong things to produce freedom and life and gratification within us. And so it's no mistake that Paul mentions this here. Tend to this stuff. If you want to put on the clothing of Christ, be beautiful to the world, we've got to tend to this stuff. Some of it's got to die. And now this is the second half of this passage as he transitions from the sexuality to the way that we talk and the way that we treat each other, the way that we look at each other, not necessarily in a sexual nature, but just in a relational nature. I was trying to prep this passage this morning, going over my message, and I'm downstairs in the worship arts room, and one of the things I love to do is just crank music while I'm thinking and praying through Scripture, and I'm going through these different YouTube videos, and it was so hard because... I'm Dutch, so I'm cheap, so I don't have like this premium account, so I gotta listen to little commercials at the beginning, and every single one right now is political. So I'm trying to play a worship song about laying down our sin, and every single worship song is starting with a minimum five second before I can hit skip this ad clip that's just spewing vitriolic language, riling people up, making them hate the other threatening us to say, if that person gets in, oh my goodness, the world will be a dumpster fire for all eternity. And they want to provide these post-apocalyptic images where the earth is just all falling apart, like Jesus never came, never existed, doesn't reign, isn't coming again, has no redemptive plan for humanity. And then I hit skip, and then I listen to these beautiful songs about laying down our sin and that Jesus reigns and there is a king above all kings. And I thought to myself, this is so sad. We keep thinking that what will satisfy us the most is if our little Christian group can get as close as we can to the scraps that will fall from the resolute desk in the Oval Office, rather than looking to our future reality and the kingdom of God as it breaks in and being a part of the manifestation of that now to bring something beautiful into this world. And I really saw that as a gut check in this moment in terms of how we see each other. Because I've caught myself doing it, and I hear other people starting to do this all the time, right? If I drive by somebody's front yard and I see that political sign there, I, I now know everything I need to know about that person. Do you understand how dangerous that is within our soul as followers of Jesus to do that? Any them category your brain has the capacity to make 
flies in direct contradiction to what Jesus wanted his people to look like and to be to one another. Our brains are producing our own form of propaganda right now. It allows us to take a group of people and define them by their ideologies and not by their image bearing. It allows us to look at somebody else and reduce them to a political platform for political power of an earthly world as opposed to someone who stands level as me under the same common denominator before the throne above all thrones. And I don't know about you, but I'm being deeply convicted in this season that it's going to end, that whoever's party wins at the end of this little political race. And I say little on purpose, not because it's not of value, not because it's not of importance, but if you put that next to the King of Kings, we are talking about lesser things. So as we interact with one another, can we do this in a godly and a good way? Now you also must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. You must! I think we'd like to categorize this as like, this is like next level Christianity 3.0 where you like get really, really mature and then that's just what kind people do. No, no, no. This is, this is like the base level of Christianity. You must rid yourselves of all of this if you want to put any of the goodness on And again, this language is reflexive in nature. You rid yourself. You do this. I'll start with me. You start with you. Not everybody pointing their finger at somebody else. Jesus had something to say about this, didn't he? Something about a plank and a speck in each other's eyes. We're so good right now at pointing out everybody else's, but Jesus' command is the same as Paul's. You start with you. I'll worry about convicting everybody else. How beautiful is your language right now? How reflective of the character of Jesus are you right now? Are you spending more time listening to his voice than your favorite political pundit? So read yourselves. You start with you and I'll start with me. I was so grateful this week to get time to start compiling some leading Christian voices um, who have been calling us um, to take the high road, to reconsider how it is that we look at each other Christian leaders have been doing this for quite some time. Richard Mao, a good friend, a board member of this institution, his book, Uncommon Decency, a great example. Ben Sass, current Republican leading voice, one of the rising stars within that party, wrote a book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, speaking out of his Christianity, talking about how partisan lines have divided us and topics have divided us, and we're losing the ability to sit in tension and talk about our friends on the other side of this issue or that. And you guys, we have internets and social media now that create a reflection of the world back in our own image as it creates algorithms that monitor your behavior and throw back at you an echo chamber that every time you hop in front of that screen, it's showing back at you the things that you've shopped for and you, you've liked, you might also like. And it does this to us. It creates an internet and a social media world through our avatars in our own image. And so we only become further entrenched. We don't live in dissonance. We don't live in tension. And we have a very well-defined category of who them is. Should be no surprise, this book would have never needed to be written before, but it did today. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. Eugene Cho, one of my favorite Christian pastors and, and writers right now. 
Thou shalt not be a jerk, a Christian's guide to engaging politics. Like, if that's where we got to start right now. Just, let's just not be jerks. It's kind of really only up from here, though, isn't it? Maybe that's the good news at this. In a book, he says this, the state of our politics, as he's quoting Michael Ware, who was the faith outreach director for Barack Obama back in the day. The state of our politics is a reflection of the state of our souls. In other words, he's going on to talk about the fact that what we see happening in media and in politics and more broadly in culture isn't necessarily what's shaping us, but maybe perhaps it's actually a reflection of us. Maybe we're just simply receiving back what we created. What if it's actually more of a mirror that strips off the thin veneer of some of our Christian niceness to show the places in us that still need the healing power of Jesus Christ? Is it possible? Russell Moore was on campus as a first Monday speaker a little while back. He wrote a book called Onward on the same topic, how to engaging the culture without, engaging the culture without losing the gospel, right? Christians are having a hard time figuring out how to do this, but it is so important now more than ever to show the world that that is possible, and we need you guys to engage this. Don't run away from it. Don't run and hide and don't say, I don't want to talk about politics. We don't talk about that here. Like, as a follower of Jesus, learn to find your way through this. Russell Moore says the first step to cultural influence is not to contextualize the present, right? So not to just simply be reactive, but actually to contextualize the future. And the future is awfully strange, even to us. Or another title sitting on my desk right now. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. They say we have to practice seeing each other as human beings and not walking opinions or ideologies. This is why it's so much more important not to hide behind a keyboard. But to look at the image bearer of the fellow person you disagree with and see the reflection of God in them. Before you spout off something really mean, it doesn't look a lot like Jesus at all. There are Christian leaders who are doing this on the night before the election. Justin Gibney, author of this book, Compassion and Conviction, is going to be on campus helping us think this through. He says the goal is not to have all Christians share the same exact politics, but to have all Christians think Christianly about politics. Because our allegiance lies much higher than that. And why am I bringing all these things up? I just think we stand at a place where it's the very people who have been called to be salt and to be light are right now too often being assaulted by something that is anything other than light. And so this isn't a moment to keep blaming each side of darkness for why it's so dark, because there's enough of that already happening. What isn't happening yet is the beautiful alternative. I started this devotional book this morning, and I'm having an absolute blast reading it. Sky Jathani's, what if Jesus was serious? One of my favorite authors, pastors, commentators, past managing editor of, editor of Christianity Today and chronic doodler decided to make a devotional book out of his doodles. And it's just kind of jarring to me, this reminder of like, what if Jesus actually was serious? Like if Jesus says somebody, you know, insults you, persecute, like pray for them. What if we are supposed to love our enemies and not argue with them? 
What if when someone asks us to walk with them one mile, we really are supposed to go two? Or if someone slaps us on the cheek to actually turn to them the other also? You have to make a decision. Either Jesus was not only the savior of the world and also a genius, or that you don't trust his wisdom. I hear so many excuses today why the wisdom of Jesus just needs to have some sort of concession built around it or why we don't really have to follow that. But being brought back to the words of Christ himself and being forced to ask the question, what if Jesus was serious? Because if he is, then I, I need to spend more time on me than I do telling whoever else what to do. I need to lay down my own agenda in order to find life that's other-directed in other people. I need to address my own sins if I want to be able to put on the clothing of Christ and have them even remotely fit. I need to go back to the heart of the gospel if I want to look like Jesus in this world. There are parts of us that need to be reminded and reawoken to those realities. Let me ask the band to come on up and lead us in a closing song. And I just want to invite you to stand with me. And um, I'm going to offer up this prayer. And if you would be willing, as we challenge God to awaken these parts within us, if you would take a posture of openness, and if your spirit is willing, pray this prayer from inside with me. Jesus, you get it all. You are the name above all names, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. You have never given me a law that wasn't for me. You have never told us to do anything that wasn't for the flourishing of your people, the advancement of your kingdom, and the glorification of your name. Father, I ask that you give me a posture of openness to whatever it is that your spirit wants to do in my life. At any and every cost, I don't want to win anyone over because I've already been won by you. And for me, that's enough. So convict me of the sins in my life that need to be repented of and be oh so quick to enfold me in your loving arms, reminding me again and again that you came that I would have life and have it in abundance.